Hello and welcome back to the ILO's Future of Work podcast. I'm Sophie Fisher. Advances in generative artificial intelligence, or AI, will have widespread implications for labour markets and production. But whereas in the past automation has been seen as primarily affecting low-skilled jobs, such as those in agriculture or in factories, AI is different. And many say that the effects of tools such as ChatGPT will be on more highly skilled jobs, the so-called white-collar workers. I have with me today two people who are well qualified to throw light on this question. Shakid Noy and Whitney Zhang are both with the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, better known as MIT, which is in the United States. They've published a new paper, Experimental Evidence on the Productivity Effects of Generative Artificial Intelligence. Shakid and Whitney, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Why, first of all, why don't you run us through the key findings of your paper? Yeah, so it, the way we typically summarize it, um, our paper has four main findings. Uh, the first is that access to uh, generative AI, in this case, ChatGBT 3.5, increased the productivity of medium-level white-collar professionals on the sorts of writing tasks they might typically encounter in their jobs. Uh, and it raised their productivity both by allowing them to complete those tasks faster and by slightly raising the quality of the resulting output. Uh, the second finding is that the productivity gains were larger for workers whose initial ability levels were lower. Um, they gained about the same in terms of increased speed as higher ability workers, but gained much more in terms of quality of their output. The third finding is that workers' initial reactions to encountering these technologies seem to be pretty positive. Uh, people were more satisfied with the work that they'd done and with the task uh, when given access to ChatGPT compared to when they were asked to complete the task without access to that technology. Uh, and then finally, when we followed up with the workers who'd completed the tasks in our experiment and asked them about their activities and their real jobs two weeks and two months after the experiment, uh, a substantial fraction of them, 30 to 40%, were using ChatGPT in their real jobs uh, but the percentage using it was substantially higher in the treatment group whom we'd introduced to ChatGPT compared to the control group whom we had not introduced to ChatGPT, uh, suggesting that there are still kind of frictions or barriers to diffusion of the technology uh, in real workplaces. Right. So to sum up your first two findings, essentially it makes higher skilled workers quicker and lower skilled workers both better and quicker. Exactly, yep. So the consequences for this are potentially greater productivity. Um, but what do you think the consequences are for employment and wages? So this, I would say, depends on a number of factors that we can't directly address in the experiment itself. Um, in particular, if we think about things on both the demand and the supply sides, if there's this increased productivity and workers are able to produce more than on the demand side, there's this question of, are people going to demand these types of outputs more? So for example, if we think that the demand for writing or advertisements or coding would substantially increase, then this could suggest an increase in employment and wages. Whereas if that demand is relatively inelastic, then perhaps this would lead to a decrease in jobs overall. And then just thinking about the supply as well. So 
one thing is that our tasks are around this very specific part of what most people's jobs are doing this kind of writing. Whereas a lot of tasks in the real world are much more loose and require a lot more judgment and planning and these other factors. And so then just also thinking about, um, if this is 5% of someone's job, for example, maybe I can't take that 5% out and then replace that person entirely. This just means that they have 5% more time or they're going to fill that time with other work. And so it also depends to what extent these tasks are the main part of someone's job or just some small part that's then complemented by other pieces. Because the subjects in your experiment were basically doing writing tasks, weren't they, which um, required them to, to synthesize information and then produce a piece of text. That, that's correct, isn't it? That's right. So what other skills do you see, see this applying to, or would it simply be, be that? I think it's a, it's a potentially very flexible technology um, and we're only beginning to see the, the range of applications that, that generative AI systems can be applied to. I think definitely uh, writing tasks like the ones in our experiment in the sense that they're relatively generic, they're not extremely technical, uh, are one main application for generative AI, but there's also lots of other things. Uh, it's very good at writing code, for example. Um, it can be good at other things like... Uh, summarizing documents, synthesizing uh, information, maybe even as a cooperative tool for brainstorming or coming up with ideas. So it's, you know, potentially a technology with a lot of applications. I would think your findings might be of concern to high-skilled workers who are hearing what you say, because essentially someone could employ a lower-skilled worker who would presumably be cheaper and get almost exactly the same results as a worker who might potentially be more expensive. I think limited to the specific set of tasks, I would say yes, I think in some sense, that we, that's what you would find here. But at the same time, I again, I, I think a lot of these times these tasks are bundled together. And potentially when you're paying for these high-skilled workers, you're also asking in some sense for their skills in judgment or interpersonal communication or their ability to work with others on a team. Um, and these aren't things that I think ChatGBT right now would be great at assisting at and I think it's still our important skills in the workplace. And so depending on what that bundle of skills looks like in the job, um, I think that would ultimately predict what is going to happen. And then I think the other thing, this relates back to complementarity versus substitution more broadly, is that here these initial low performers are doing much better, but they're doing much better because they're just taking this prompt putting it into GPT, taking this output and then submitting it is what we generally seem to be finding. And so then there's also a question of, well, do you even need these low skilled workers in the first place? Or can you just hire someone to do this prompting? And that would ultimately be more efficient. And in that case, I think it becomes even more unclear what the impacts on inequality might look like. Did you look at all at the impact on inequality or is that something that still requires more research depending on, on how the technology is rolled out? So we looked at uh, an important input into the ultimate effects on inequality, which is uh, by how much it raises the productivity of lower ability compared to higher ability workers. 
there's a common argument that inequality has increased a lot over the past several decades, at least in part because technologies like computers enhanced the productivity of high ability workers more than they enhanced the productivity of low ability workers, which gave rise to divergence in wages and earnings. So in this case, what we found, again, limited to a very specific set of tasks in a very specific context was the opposite, which is that the productivity impacts were greater for lower ability workers. But, you know, a bunch of other factors will determine what the ultimate equilibrium effects of these technologies on unemployment will be, like some of the demand side factors and supply side factors that Whitney has talked about um, how training and human capital acquisition will adapt, how companies will restructure their workforces and their kind of models of production and things like that. And so it's really impossible to tell from current information what the ultimate impacts on inequality will be. Because higher productivity is often associated with reductions in poverty and increasing wages. So you, in that sense, it, it might actually reduce inequality. Absolutely. But productivity has been stagnant for a long time, even as you know we've gotten fantastic new things like the internet. I don't think there's a, a consensus on why, for example, the internet hasn't resulted in higher productivity growth than we're currently seeing, but it suggests that things like bottlenecks from other parts of the production system or other factors might be important. So I wouldn't be super confident from the fact that generative AI raises the productivity of white collar workers specifically that this will translate into the kinds of broad-based productivity gains for the economy that that would translate into increases in living standards and reductions in poverty. I think it's it's too early to tell. And I wanted to pick you up on one particular sentence in your paper, which said that the experiment's evidence suggests that it largely substitutes for worker effort rather than complements worker skills, potentially causing a decrease in demand for workers with adverse distributional effects as capital owners gain at the expense of workers. By which I think you mean that you know the people who have the money and the capital will gain a higher proportion of the benefits. Would that be correct? That's right. Unless action is taken to, to shape the impact, be that through legislation or taxation or something like that. Right. And I, I think this goes back to what we were just talking about in terms of what are these workers actually doing in our experiment? And it's that they're taking these prompts, they're putting them into ChatGPT, and then they're submitting these outputs. And so it seems plausible that you could, if that's all that they're adding value to, then you would have someone where that's their job. You don't need all of these workers to be doing that kind of task. And so who then takes all of the profits that come out of doing this kind of output generation? Well, then it's the people who own this type of capital in the first place. Do you think it is also possible to, to, to shape the impact and the way that this is applied through other kinds of institutions? For, for example, uh, you know, stronger worker representation, greater, greater voice in the shaping of processes, unions, things like that? Absolutely. Um, I think this is an area where there's been a lot of uh, speculation because there's a very large amount of kind of anecdotal or qualitative evidence about the ways that unions or other forms of worker representation are involved in shaping the way that technologies affect firms and shaping how firms adjust their employment structures in response to new technologies. I would say there's still very little uh, solid evidence on the interaction between systems of worker representation and technology adoption. Um, 
you know, you can tell optimistic stories where worker representatives uh, protect workers and encourage firms to upskill them, you know, thereby ensuring that technology gets rolled out in a way that really benefits everyone, right? Benefits the consumers through productivity gains, but also benefits uh, workers through internal productivity gains and wage gains. Uh, but there's also potentially stories where worker representatives block the deployment and development of new technologies in a way that's ultimately harmful for society because they're representing relatively narrow interests. Uh, and I would say there's as of yet no good empirical evidence that would help us uh, adjudicate between those two possibilities. But that definitely seems like a really important area of research going forward. I, I was also talking about those those who might benefit. I was also struck by a point you made in the paper about um, that it could increase options for people who potentially are are very creative or who have a lot of good ideas, but simply have a problem expressing themselves in ways that other others can can understand and digest. For example, people who have uh, problems with writing skills, either because they're very technological or simply because perhaps they're writing in a second or third language. Um, and ChatGPT could help them literally get their message across. Oh, that's right. Um, and I think the anecdotally, I've certainly heard from people for whom English is not their first language, that, for example, ChatGPT has been really helpful in helping them with academic writing or otherwise, where before this was a bottleneck for them, and now they're much more able to communicate their research or other areas. Um, and I think this is another way in which GPT technologies could be a sort of leveling of the playing field in that people who might be really great with creativity or thinking of ideas, um, but just have difficulty writing them in a way that sounds like professional or academic style can now use the technology to make their writing more sound like these other aspects. And so I think this could be potentially great for both these workers as well as just for innovation as a whole, potentially. I was also struck by... Um one of the other main conclusions uh, that you uh, mentioned, which was about the more subjective outcomes, e.g. the job satisfaction, that a lot of your subjects in, in the experiment found using chat GPT gave them what, equal or greater job satisfaction, whereas traditionally in the past, people have felt that forms of automation have reduced job satisfaction. Do you know why they felt that the job was more satisfying and whether that feeling lasted or whether it was simply something, um, you know, a hangover from the experiment? Right. So to some extent, we definitely think that this reflects people's first reactions to an exciting new technology rather than necessarily something fundamental and permanent about the way that the technology affects their enjoyment of their work. So when we followed up with people two weeks and two months after the experiment, the people who were in the treatment group were much more likely to be using ChatGPT in their real jobs, but they weren't more satisfied with their real jobs than people in the control group. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that ChatGPT won't raise job satisfaction in the long run. It could be that it's just too small of an impact on a two-week or two-month time horizon relative to your kind of base prior level of satisfaction in your, in your job. Uh, but we don't find evidence that it's permanently improving job satisfaction. 
as to why it raised job satisfaction in our experiment, one possibility, again, is that you know, people are just really excited to discover a powerful new technology. Another possibility is just, you know, ChatGPT helps with many elements of tasks that might be kind of the least enjoyable. So editing, you know, translating your ideas into a rough draft. Um, the tasks that we gave people were not terribly exciting or stimulating. Uh, so people may in general have found, you know, writing an email or writing a short report to be a boring task. And in that case, anything that helps you finish that task more quickly uh, might raise your job satisfaction. So, it, you know, you could tell a story where basically ChatGPT is, is speeding people up or, uh, you know, helping them expend less effort precisely in the areas that they least enjoy working and in the types of tasks that they least enjoy doing. But again, I, I would say there's no, there's no conclusive evidence on that from our experiment. So in that case, where do you think, I mean, research always leads to, uh, uh, raises as many questions as it answers. So where do you want to go next with this? What, what do you see as, as the key questions that have been raised by what you find so far? I think the next big thing is really to try to move into the field into a setting where the tasks are much less well-defined, where there we're requiring much more of workers to use a broad bundle of skills, where there's many of these organizational type concerns that we aren't able to address in an individual level experiment and to see what productivity impacts of workers look like there. I think there's just also interesting work to be done in looking at how organizations are figuring out how to adapt to these workflows. Um, so Shaked and I have been looking into some more qualitative stuff where it seems like companies are really uh, seeing this as an exciting new tool, but not quite sure of how do I actually get my workforce to start using this what are some areas where this might really improve productivity in my organization? Um, what are good use cases and what are bad use cases? And of course, there's all sorts of regulatory and legal things as well that further complicate things. Um, so I think just having a broader look at the ecosystem as a whole, I think is the exciting next direction. Yes. In other words, the difference between what happens in the lab and what happens in, in real life. Shakid and Whitney, thank you very much for joining us. That was um, extremely interesting. Another look at the effects of generative AI on the world of work. But unfortunately, that is all we have time for in this edition of the podcast. So once again, thanks to Shakid Noy and Whitney Zhang for joining us and talking about their paper. If you want to know more about it, you can find a link to it on the webpage for this podcast on the ILO's website. But for now, thank you very much for listening and please join us again soon. For now, goodbye.